Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And when you find that, please stand with me. We'll read God's Word, verses 1 through 8. Talking today about forgiveness of sin. Matthew chapter 9 and beginning at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who forgives sin. Thank you, Lord, for your assurance. And thank you, Lord, for your authority. We rest on your authority today. We trust in your authority today. We trust in your love and your mercy and your grace today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks after an oil rig exploded off the coast of Louisiana, killing 11 people, officials estimate the sunken rig has been gushing almost 210,000 gallons of oil into the Gulf waters each day. Big mess. It comes with a warning. The massive spill could create the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history. Oil spills are bad. They cause a separation between the people and the ocean, a separation between the people and even the beach. And thinking about our topic for today, sin is bad. It's like an oil spill. It causes a separation. It messes us up causes separation in relationship with God and other people. We need help. We need to clean up. Forgiveness is good. Forgiveness is like the cleanup we are hoping will happen in the Gulf of Mexico. That we can be forgiven of our sins is the greatest news we could ever hear. Because we are all in the same boat so to speak, when it comes to sin. Like a ruined oil tanker gushing oil in the water, we are polluted without any hope of cleanup on our own. And if we are to be forgiven, God must do the forgiving. God knows our sin condition. God knows what we are like. And He has provided a means to deal with it in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this message is for young and old alike. doesn't matter how old you are, God wants to speak to you today through His Word. 
And I, I just want you to know I have prayed for you this week like I do every week for wherever you're at in your level of understanding, wherever you're at in the process of spiritual growth, but I have prayed for you who know and love Jesus, whose sins are forgiven, that you would walk closely with him. I have prayed for those of you who do not yet know Jesus, whose sins are not forgiven, that you would come to know him and his forgiveness. So let's look at the word today. Let's look and start at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. We're going to go through this, through this passage and then we'll make a few observations and hopefully come out with uh, some pertinent implications and applications for our lives. But first of all, let's look at Matthew 9 and consider the story. Listen to this story that we find here. We've been considering the fact, remember, that uh, we've been in Matthew 8 for a while and now we're in Matthew 9 and we're seeing this idea that Jesus has authority over everything. He has authority over disease and sickness and nature and demons. And now we see Jesus with authority over mankind's biggest problem, sin. Chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus got into a boat and he crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he was in the country of the Gadarenes. He went back over to home base. It says he went back to his own city. What city was that? Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us it was Capernaum. Most likely he was in Peter's house. Most likely he was his guest. In the Gospels, Jesus is a man of four cities. Bethlehem, the city of birth. Nazareth, city of growth. Capernaum, the city of ministry. And Jerusalem, the city of his death and resurrection. But he has come to Capernaum. And it says that some people, verse 1, verse 2, excuse me, brought to him a paralyzed man. They, they brought him a man on a stretcher, on a bed, on a pallet, on a, on a cot. We learn first and foremost that good friends, real friends, bring their friends to Jesus. Uh, Matthew's usage of the word behold continues to amaze me. You see it twice in this passage. We saw it three times last week. The idea uh, when this word behold is, is there, it means look, it means listen, it means something big is about to be shared, and, and it, it's sort of an exclamation point before instead of after something happens. Behold, kind of an exclamation point in the front of a, of a sentence. It's like a big arrow pointing down with a neon sign. Look here, don't miss this. Behold. What does he say? Behold, some people brought to Jesus a man who was paralyzed. He was lying on a bed. Jesus saw their faith. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He saw their faith. What does that mean? Uh, first of all, they, he saw living proof of their quest to get to him. Mark and Luke open this passage up a bit more to us. In fact, go to Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, we, we read more details. You're going to instantly recognize this if you're familiar with, with the Bible and the Gospels, but in verse 2, and it says that um, many were gathered together. Mark chapter 2 and verse 2. Many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. 
So these men that were bringing their, their buddy to Jesus couldn't get in the front door of the house, most likely Peter's house. And he was preaching the word to them. So what was Jesus doing? He was preaching the word. The living word of God was preaching the written word of God. He was speaking the word of God to them. And verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith. So there's the, the context in Luke. You can, you can read a little bit more as well. But in Luke chapter 5, verse 17... We read more about the setting on one of those days as he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now Matthew tells us about scribes. There were also some Pharisees there. And they were sitting there and come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. From all over they had come to hear Jesus speak. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. His own power was with him to heal. And verse 18, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he acted, he responded. So going back to Matthew chapter 9, what you've got here is that they came in through the roof at great risk and cost to themselves. They were crazy, desperate for Jesus. They, and by the way, Jesus loves it when we are desperate for him, so desperate for him that nothing will stop us. Now, this man was unable to walk or do for himself, and this unnamed man, friends, bring him to Peter's home most likely a two-story structure with an outside stairway up to the roof. And the rooftop in Bible times was where people would go in the heat of the day to, to rest. They would go up there at night to sleep on hot nights. But they took the tiles off the roof and lowered their friend right there down in front of Jesus when he is preaching. Can you imagine that scene? I don't know, maybe dust is falling on top of Jesus' head. Um, by the way, de-roofing was antisocial. Okay? For example, right now, if it happened, it would be antisocial for someone to break through the roof and interrupt this, this meeting. Okay? That's what they did. They, they did an antisocial thing. They busted through the roof and laid down this guy, made a big old commotion. It was, it was a controversial thing to do. They, they made a big commotion and put him down right there in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Faith is compelled to get in the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine the silence in that room at that point in time? Jesus stopped speaking. Scribes and Pharisees watching, wondering what he's going to say, wondering what he's going to do. How would he respond? We see how Jesus re responds 
in, in verse 2, he saw their faith. He saw what they had done, the lengths to which they had gone to get this man in front of Jesus. And he says to the paralyzed man, something that sounds at first very confusing to us and even maybe that it doesn't even fit in the context. Because he says, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm thinking that the, the, his friends brought him to Jesus because they heard he could heal. Right? So Jesus saying, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven, sounds a bit, I don't know, out of place, doesn't it? Your sins are forgiven. He says, take courage, my son. Courage is, is that inward strength to overcome fear as opposed to simply being uh, pretending to be outwardly bold. It is a, it is a substance type of a thing, and it, it, it overcomes fear. So Jesus is saying to this man, get beyond your fear right now. Take courage. Take heart. You can imagine that the, the man might have been a little bit apprehensive about getting laid, put down through a roof in front of Jesus and scribes and Pharisees of, uh, of which he wouldn't be able to be in the presence of being a, a, a man with a disability. Because in those days, the Jews believed that every sickness and every um, bodily uh, problem was because of someone's sin. So they would have put the two and two together and said, this man has sinned, therefore he is paralyzed. Jesus says, take courage, my son. It's a term of friendship, term of identity, identification. And then he says these words, music to the ears of those who are tormented by their sin, your sins are forgiven. The man didn't ask for forgiveness. Now, forgiven means to be sent away. Forgiven means to be driven away, literally done away with. Jesus says your sins are driven away. They're done away with. They're gone. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, is as far as God has removed our transgressions from us. There is assurance in there. It's a shades of Isaiah 6, when after he had confessed his sins to God, uh, the word comes to him in Isaiah 6, verse 7, your sins, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, it's paid for, it's, it's, it's gone. Now we're going to come back to this idea of forgiveness, but let's keep moving through this passage. Let's look at verse 3. And behold, again, look, listen, something is going to happen here again. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They, they were thinking ill of Jesus. They were thinking evil of Jesus. They were accusing Jesus of sinning against God. So what is happening here. To them, Jesus had insulted God by acting as if he was God. We know he is God, but they didn't believe that, so they thought ill of him because Jesus acted as forgiveness' source. They knew that only God could forgive sins. Now, as God, this is, this is what he was and is. He is forgiveness' source. Jesus is the source of forgiveness. But they did not believe that he was God and we know that only God can forgive sin. The Old Testament, by the way, told the people what they could expect from a coming Messiah. 
Forgiveness and redemption, basically. Isaiah 33, verse 24 said, The people will be forgiven when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 40, in verse 2, says, Iniquity will be pardoned. Uh, Isaiah 44, in verse 22, says that God will say to his people, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. They're gone. Return to me then, because I have redeemed you. I have paid for your release. But the response of the, of the scribes was, was blasphemy on their part, accusing Jesus. Now, verse 4, we see that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus begins to teach here. He's going to teach them. Interestingly, he was in the middle of teaching when the man came down. Now he continues to teach, but with the, con, the new context laid in front of him. He, the man, by the way, is, is still lying paralyzed on the cot on his bed with which he came down on which he came down through the roof okay right so jesus is speaking as this man is lying there this man has already received the news that his sins are forgiven but he's still paralyzed can't move some scholars think he was probably a quadriplegic but jesus first of all asks a very probing question to the scribes because he knew their thoughts and he said why do you think evil in your hearts he knew that they were thinking evil in their hearts now it's easy for us to say yeah God knows my thoughts and we say that but do we really believe that and, and if so would we really think all the things we think even the things you're thinking right now I know how it goes but Jesus knew their thoughts and he asked them a rhetorical question which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how are you going to find out the proof? It's going to be a lot harder. If you say rise and walk and he doesn't, hey, there's proof, right? So it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. He's giving them a rhetorical question. He goes, of course, it's easier to say this. Now, doing it is another thing. And by the way, when Jesus said it, it was done. When Jesus says something, it is as good as done. It is, it is finished. It is real. It is it is. It is uh, the reality of your life. But he asked them this rhetorical question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And he gave them a telling answer, by the way. He answered his own question because it was a rhetorical question. And he said, and this, by the way, revealed his heart. It revealed his power. It revealed his authority as God and their error. He says, but that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He's not beating around the bush here. He's getting right to the point and saying, you're going to know right now that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, what does he say? Rise, take up your bed, and go home. He showed his authority as God. The man was healed. Verse 7, it says he arose and went home. He, he, obeyed, he obeyed Jesus. He, he did what, what Jesus said. But the healing showed the mighty works of God. Showed forth his glory. That Jesus doesn't just heal bodies, but he heals souls. The scribes, as I mentioned before, believed that a person, um, if they were, let's say, in this paralyzed state, is because of their own sin. The scribes also believed that a person could not get up and walk unless his sins were forgiven. And since Jesus was able to make him walk, that was proof to them that he also was able to forgive sins. 
living proof that he is God and that his claims are true. And so the man, the man in verse 7 gets up and walks. Jesus healed him spiritually, and then he healed him physically. He forgave his sins, then he healed his body. He walked, he was paralyzed, and he walked. He obeyed Jesus' instructions, he went home. Probably told his people, I mean, well, think about it. <laughs> he went home on his own, not carried anymore by his friends. Verse 8, the crowd saw it and they were in awe of God. They were afraid, literally, they had reverential fear for the one in, who, within whom, in whose presence they were in who was so far greater than them. They gave credit to God for what they had seen. Contrary to the scribes who, in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, were guilty of blasphemy themselves. And so in, in terms of this story we see here, people brought their friend to Jesus. The religious leaders, called scribes, thought evil of Jesus. Jesus taught them an important lesson. The man walked again. Again, most likely he was not paralyzed from birth. And boy, were the crowds awed by what they saw. And they gave glory to God and ascribed greatness to God. Now, I want to move on to some implications and applications based on this text. Hopefully, they come from this text. I want, to, I want us, in, in a way, to draw a circle around one phrase in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 9 and then dive into its depths this idea that your sins are forgiven. That Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Three things we need to know. And the first, regarding forgiveness. The first is this. That while everything we suffer is indirectly due to sin, because of the curse of sin, everything we suffer is not directly due to our sin. If you're sick today, do not direct, um, instantly make the connection that, hmm, I have sinned, therefore God gave me this. Everything we suffer is indirectly due to sin, but not everything we suffer is directly due to our sin. This is important for us to remember. And, and, and again, in those days, most Jews believed that every disease and sickness was the direct result of your sin. That's simply not true. Many biblical examples show us that. Job, who through no fault of his own, but by God's grace and permission, encountered horrific tragedy, encountered debilitating illness, and his friends thought he had sinned to deserve such a turn of events. One of his friends asked him this, who ever perished being innocent? Sorry, comforter. Whoever perished being innocent? They're saying, you sinned. Another friend said, if your sons sinned against God, the ones who died, by the way, then he gave them over to their transgression. They were connecting the dots between sickness and sin and saying, it's because of what you did. Not true. And although extremely painful physically and emotionally, what happened to Job was used by God for Job's good and God's glory. John chapter 9 a man born blind. When he came out of his mother's womb, he was blind. He couldn't see. He had never seen in his entire life. And Jesus' disciples 
asked him, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. They were assuming there was a connection. And what was Jesus' answer? Neither. Neither him nor his parents sinned so that he was born blind, but that the works of God would be made manifest, that God's glory would be shown. We must avoid making unwise connections between sin and sickness. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing, though, on the other hand, is that everyone needs God's forgiveness. Everyone. Because everyone sins. Only God can give a person what they most need, forgiveness of sins. Now, have you ever felt so bad about something you did or something that was done to you that you got discouraged and depressed over it? So weighed down by your sins or the sins of others that you felt sick. If so, you know how the paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9 must have felt. I doubt there were any more encouraging words that the paralyzed man could have heard from Jesus than your sins are forgiven. Even more so than rise Take up your bed and go home. In this story, it seems as if the man was paralyzed due to his sin. Now remember I just said that not everything we suffer is directly due to our sin. But that everything we suffer is indirectly due to sin in general. But in this situation, in this story, it seems as if the man was paralyzed Due to his sin. I don't like to imagine things out of the Bible too often, but I imagine this in this setting. What if he had been breaking into someone's house through their roof and had fallen and become paralyzed? What? What if? See, Jesus knew his heart and he knew his thoughts. And his greatest need was to be forgiven. Here was a man who could not walk, walk, was on a stretcher in front of him, most likely the one that he spent every day on. Beds in those days were more like a stretcher or cot type of a thing. And here's this man who cannot walk But Jesus knows his thoughts. Jesus knows his heart. Jesus knows every hair on his head. He knows the day of his birth and the day of his death. And Jesus looks at him and sees right past um, limbs that can't move to his soul and to what he was desiring from Jesus. There was no indication here that this man was brought here against his will. And Jesus saw their faith, his friends and his. And this man's greatest need was to be forgiven of sin, not physical healing. But Jesus gave him both. Imagine that this man most likely was condemning himself as others were for his situation, for his sin, for the choices he had made, whatever they were in his life. 
Everyone needs God's forgiveness. And this man needed God's forgiveness. We see with the word paralytic and we think, well, he needs to be healed physically. But the deeper need that Jesus knew was that he needed forgiveness of sin. The third thing we need to know is this, that everyone needs Jesus. For us who, who know about Jesus, it's easy to say, well, that's just like the thing you just said. Uh, everyone needs God's forgiveness because it only comes through Jesus. But not everyone understands that point. Everyone needs Jesus. See, we have all sinned. Rich, poor, young, old, healthy, and diseased. And sin is a condition we all share. Every one of us. And we cannot escape. We cannot escape its effects. And its effects show itself in, in many ways, by the way. Many ways. Think with me for a moment of our current economic crisis in America been ongoing we keep thinking there's an upturn and a downturn and it's like traveling through the mountains and getting to a mountain peak and then going in the valley and going up another mountain but many people many people are in major debt today now many were in major debt before this economic downturn many people cannot pay their bills they, they don't have enough money to pay their obligations you you walk you, you drive through any neighborhood right now and you will see houses that are bank owned Well, the bank always owns our houses unless we pay it off, but uh, this is the type where you, you give it back. And many people have had that happen, and it's a, it's a sad thing. And, and, and we empathize with everyone who goes through that. But it's the idea of being broke, bankrupt, um, having no money, and, 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 and just make the connection with me here, that it, that's an accurate description of our spiritual state apart from Jesus. That we owe God a debt we can never repay. That we, we are, as Matthew chapter 5 says, you know, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with, with beautiful words of blessing. And he said in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he was saying is, instead of a curse, there is God's gracious favor upon those who are poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit is the one who owns their bankruptcy before God, that admits that they have nothing in their hands to bring to Jesus, that there is nothing they could do to earn forgiveness or buy forgiveness or be, be worthy of forgiveness. They realize they have absolutely nothing, that they are bankrupt before God. And they declare that bankruptcy. But God has provided the means to deal with our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the man on the stretcher that day, he knew he was a sinner. And the reason he knew he was is because he was. <laughs> Since he was, he must have figured that God was his enemy. And Jesus brought him the forgiveness of God that he so desired. And then he knew he was no longer God's enemy, but God's friend. You know what it's like when you're, when you're enemies with somebody? And you just you don't want to be around them. And, and you, 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 you build a case against them all the time. And when you're in their presence, you, you, can barely, you can't even look them in the eye. But when reconciliation and forgiveness comes about and, and a friendship is, is built between someone you were once at odds with, there is, 
there's freedom, there's, there's joy, a burden is lifting off your shoulders, right? Well, this man had this burden lifted off his shoulders. He was no longer God's enemy, but his friend. See, the scribes felt no need for forgiveness that day. They felt that they had no need for forgiveness because they were very worthy of forgiveness already in their minds. A paralyzed man, most likely tormented by his failure and the consequences of his own sin, had the depth of sin released by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Truly, Jesus is the one who would save his people from their sins, Matthew Chapter 1 and verse 21 says. But see, there is no forgiveness from God apart from faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He frees us from all the things you could not be freed from apart from Him. There is no forgiveness from God apart from faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Not everyone acknowledges this or believes this or even ever gets there in their life. But Jesus is the Savior and the only Savior of all who believe. And if you will not believe, He will not be your Savior. If you hear these words and don't know Jesus, there is a separation between you and God that cannot be healed by anything but God. And that doesn't, if that does not change before you die, you will stay in that separated condition from God forever. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. They have God's grace rather than God's curse. The substitutionary death of Jesus is the basis of forgiveness. Therefore, you must accept Jesus as your substitute, as your sin substitute. I've heard of, I've been sitting with people in restaurants before who demand sugar substitutes. Literally demand them. You have to have that fix or something. I don't know what it is. How come you don't have, you know? We need to want the substitute, Jesus Christ in our life. The substitutionary death of Jesus is the basis of forgiveness. You need to accept him as your substitute because as Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have what? Forgiveness. The forgiveness of our sins. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So to the no, those who know Jesus, God says, I will no longer relate to you on the basis of your sin. When I look at you, I don't see your sin anymore. But now I am relating to you on the basis of the shed blood of my son. When I look at you, I see the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering over your sin. Let's look a little little deeper now. And and, and I want to share with you three things that God wants us to experience. Three things that God wants us to experience. First of all, faith. 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 Jesus saw their faith. And then he said, take courage. See, if you belong to God by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, then take God at his word. Believe what he says in his word. Believe him and press on through the discouragement that is brought on even by your ongoing sin in your life. Paul Tripp 
says that there is one person who is the most influential person in your life. And it might not be who you think it is. But I know who the most important influential uh, the most influential person in your life is this very moment just by looking at you i know that it's the same person for me you are the most influential person in your life because every moment you are talking to yourself you are the, from the moment you wake up you are carrying on a conversation with yourself i know you are I do the same thing. It's it's part of being human. Why would God want us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Why would God want us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Because our minds are going all day long. And we are talking to ourselves. You are the most influential person in your life. What's your conversation sprinkled with? What's your conversation saturated with? Is it saturated with the Word of God? Is it saturated with condemning ideas? Is it saturated by the world's hollow wisdom? What are your conversations with yourself saturated with, flavored by? That shapes your life. A man's thoughts, a person's thoughts, dye their soul. They form who you are. Some people don't know how to get along with people. Some people don't know how to deal with people because all day long, they've got a weird conversation going on in their head. Some people are hearing voices. And they're not grace-filled. In the Psalms, by the way, we, we meet real people living honestly before God. Go with me to Psalm 32, please. Psalm 32. I love the Psalms. They're gritty. They're real. They don't hold back any punches. David starts Psalm 32 by saying, Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Praise God. Whose sin is covered. Praise God. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But then he says in verse 3, When I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. See, it had an effect on even his body, his own sin. And then he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Go to, go to God when you know you have sinned. Psalm 51. There's a real person in a real situation, real bad trouble in life, based on his own choices. David, Nathan the prophet had gone to him and confronted him with his sin. And he starts out by saying, have mercy on me, O God. He is, he, is, he is asking for God's steadfast love according to his abundant mercy. Well, of course he's asking for mercy because he needed God's mercy that holds back his wrath against sin, his anger against sin. 
He says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He was talking to himself about it all day long. How about a person who murders someone? They're thinking, for the rest of their life, I took another's life. Whatever we do to other people that is not right, often we, we keep reminding ourselves, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. And he says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now he hurt a lot of people. People died because of his sin. But he knew that his sin was against God and God alone. Psalm 139, verse 1. David keeps going. He's asking God to search his heart. He says, O Lord, verse 1, you have searched me and known me. You searched me and known me. Verse 23, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Anxious thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's amazing what we do to try to deal with our sin. We try to hide our sin. We want to minimize it like using air freshener to, uh, you know, you know, you do with the, oh, get the try to get the, cover the odors, right? Some of them say they eliminate odors. We overemphasize it at times. We magnify our sin. The other day I went on a tour of a, of a landfill. A good friend of mine runs the uh, Frank Bowerman Landfill in Irvine. It's one of the biggest landfills in all of California. Landfill is a, is a, uh, a nice name for dump, trash. They bring all the trash there. Waste management comes to my house, picks it up, and gets it out of my sight and takes it there where we don't have to see it or smell it. You know what happens when you don't take out the trash? You know how it smells. You know what it's like. Well, I went to this landfill and it, they had a complicated process, time-consuming process of layers upon layers of filters and, and all sorts of things and they, they dump this trash in and they pour things on top of it and, and there's just layer upon layer and to hide the trash, to, to get it out of the way of humans. Trash that people made. Sometimes when it comes to our sin and we're trying to either bury it or for some weird reason magnify it, we don't really believe that we're forgiven. If you're a Christian, there's a very real possibility that there is often times when you don't believe that you are truly forgiven. Maybe it's because we know how hard it is for us to forgive other people. We say to people, I forgive you. And then we continue to hold something against them. We did not forgive them. And we think God is just like us. No, he's not. God really lets it go. That's what forgiveness means. Letting it go and not bringing it up ever again. Look at your spouse for a moment. 
Think about how many times you have brought up to them their sin that you told them you forgave them for. Kids, look at your parents. Brothers and sisters, look at each other. Think about it. We say, I forgive you so easily, but we don't forgive. We bring it back. We, we put it in our back pocket and bring it up at the opportune time. Just waiting for the time to stick it to them. God is not like that. God is not like that. God doesn't say, I forgive you, but... Or I forgive you and then continue to harass you about it. Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their iniquities, their sins I will remember no more. God who knows all things chooses not to bring it up. We go to extremes. We go to extremes. Either we go like, we, here's what we do. We say, how dare you call me a sinner? How dare you judge me? Now, that person wants to be their own functional Lord. They are in control of everything and everyone. Or we go to the other extreme. How could you love someone like me? How could you forgive someone as bad as me? How could you forgive someone the huge debt of sin that I have committed? That person tries to be their own functional Savior. And both people are prideful. They think they're too bad for God to save. One thinks they're too good. Both are prideful. And I'll tell you, I know how it feels. I've, done, I've gone to both extremes. Remember when I was at Long Beach State in college, and I think probably one of the only times I ever remember someone coming up to me before I came to faith in Christ, it, it tried to get me to believe. I remember, I remember getting rid of those two guys as quick as I could. I remember thinking to myself, how dare you? Even as they were standing there, I was feeling hot inside thinking, how dare you tell me that I have sinned? Then I remember after I, after I uh, received Christ as my Savior and Lord, I remember thinking to myself, how could God forgive me all my sin? All the sins I had pretended weren't there. See, I have found that Christ's love covers a multitude of sins. Go with me to 1 John. You might have figured we'd be going there sometime today. First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think... Uh, Every, every month or quarter or whatever, I pay my, my waste management bill. And the waste management trucks come by my house every single week, every Monday, and take away my trash. Like clockwork. They forgot to take one last week. We called them up. They were there like within an hour picking up the trash. But every time you see a trash truck, think of this. 
Remember what God has done about your sin. And how he daily cleanses you from sin. See, he paid the whole cost. He took your sin away. The day of atonement. There were two goats. One paid for sin. The other was sent away and carried it away. Carried the sin away. Far, far away. Just like the trash truck carries it far, far away. And we're glad. We're thankful. There is a, what the Bible calls a propitiation. A Paying for sin, an expiation, a taking away of the sin. With your trash, you pay the bill, they come and get it and they take it away. You have to initiate it. With Jesus, with our sin on the deepest level, God initiates all the way through. God pays, God takes away, and all that He asks of us is for us to believe, to have faith, to, to rest in His finished work. It's finished. Two more things, real, real quickly. Love. Love. Jesus said, my son. My son. We've got to recognize God's ownership and activity in our life in light of that, of that and live in light of that truth. As believers, to recognize God's ownership and activity in your life. That Jesus is Lord is, means what we say. Uh, that he is in control, he is in charge, and in him we live and move and have our being. All things came from him and are held together by him. And I will say, if you're a Christian and you have been set free from your sin, you have set, been set free indeed. So don't keep telling yourself, you're not forgiven. When you have that conversation, even right now, say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me new life. Thank you, Jesus, for being Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Do not allow the tyrant of sin to rule in your life or to come back and rule. And when you sin, confess it to God. And as 1 John 1, 9 says, God will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. And you can walk in newness of life. Praise God. Last thing. Hope. Your sins are Forgiven. What hope? Cling to the hope that you have in Jesus, if you have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you need Jesus. See, Jesus is, is our hope. Hebrews 6 and verse 19 says that hope is an anchor for our souls. The anchor holds. Hope holds. Your standing with God depends on His faithfulness, not yours. So you can be still and know that he is God. You can rest in him and in his finished work. You can allow God to be your anchor. And you may feel like there's no way out of your problems. But I'll tell you, God can keep you secure even in the midst of crazy change in your life. Crazy events. You may be in despair. There's always hope. The struggles you are facing right now, at this moment, are only temporary. They will not last forever. So don't lose hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel, so don't lose hope. Your sins are forgiven are a beautiful, beautiful gift from God. The nature of forgiveness is that God freely gives it to those who trust Him humbly by faith. In Isaiah 66, He says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And now we come to the table. 
It's one of the best illustrations, by the way. The Lord's table, one of the best illustrations God gives us of forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper, communion, the bread and the cup, where we remember Christ's death on our behalf. I think a lot of Christians struggle with sin because they don't see themselves as truly being free from sin. And so as a result, they focus on their sin. Their conversation all day long is about their sin. Their sin and other sin. All their life is about sin. All of life should be about Jesus. Not only the joy, but the hope. Constantly focusing on your sin shows a lack of faith, love, and hope. And let me just say this, and then we're going to pass out the elements. We pass out the bread and the cup. Bread first, and we'll partake together. But let me just say this. There may be something you have done. There may be things you have done. There may be things that have been done to you that make you feel dirty, that make you feel shameful, that make you feel even unlovable. And things you don't want anyone else to find out about. And as a result, then you find it hard to relate appropriately to people that God has put in your life, like spouse and siblings and friends and relatives. And you hear the gospel, but what you end up doing is applying only part of it. You don't experience the true victory that Jesus won. God wants you to see the true gospel message, including the parts that you tell yourself just can't be true or possible in your situation. See, Jesus despised the shame of the cross so that we could go free. Jesus came to earth and declared war on sin and its tyrannical stranglehood on mankind. And so you may be living with huge relational or emotional scars, but you've got to know something. Jesus loves you right this moment, just as you are, and no matter how disconnected you feel, someone believes in you. Jesus is your greatest fan. You are special. Jesus loves you. Eugene Peterson said that a person has to get thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. He said a person has to be so fed up with the ways of the world before he or before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. We need to be disgusted by the thought of our sin and want Jesus to forgive us. A good look at the badness of our sin drives us to Jesus, makes us thankful to God for the blessed bankruptcy of soul that drives us to seek forgiveness.